Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Patty G Show. I'm your host, Patty G. This week, we are remote. We are in Havana Port, the new facility here on Perkins and College. I'm excited because I don't know if a lot of you know, but I also enjoy a good cigar, just as Lewis does here at Havana Port. So we're going to be talking cigars, the industry as a whole, and what they've got going on in their cigar lounge here. But before we get to that, I want to give a big, wonderful shout-out to the amazing people and partners that make this show possible each and every week. Falaya Real Estate, Horizon Financial Group, Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge, Lakeman's Health Center, Government Taco, and you know these amazing wardrobes each and every week are brought to you by McClavey Limited. And without further ado, Lewis, the man of the hour, the man of the cigar lounge, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to learn about Habana Port, y'all's new place, and your private label. So, while we get into that, when we get into everything that you've got going on and who you are and what you do, let's first and foremost give a little introduction about Havana Port, and then let's talk about what we're going to be smoking tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on again. Um, so I'm Louis Molina with Havana Port. Uh, this is an endeavor that my father and I uh, started 13 years ago now in uh, August of 2010, and uh, we've grown it to uh, two locations. Uh, we're in our Baton Rouge location, our... I guess you could consider it our home stores in Metairie, um, but Baton Rouge, uh, we're, we're in our new facility. We've been here since June 1st of 2022, and we're just happy to be here. So you're in our soon-to-be-open members lounge, so it's actually kind of a new concept for us, and we're excited to, to test it out and see how the market reacts to it. Well, let, let's let's christen yeah. the, the new members lounge. So you've Absolutely. got, on, on your side of the table, you've got this quite enormous array of cigars but in particular you've picked out two for us to enjoy this evening what what are each of these and which one do we start that's right walk me through this as if i'm a novice absolutely so we're ready to light it up and i can kind of explain to you uh what the cigar is about so this is um kind of a new project for us so we decided to experiment with small batch runs from factories that uh, we have a relationship with. So any cigar with that designation that we've called Serie España, which means the Spain series, um, and each blend will be named after a Spanish city. Uh, they're just kind of like test uh, test blends, right? So the first two that uh, we've developed is with kind of a new, exciting, up-and-coming cigar factory out of the Dominican Republic uh, called Tabacalera La Isla. So it's run by Hostos Fernandez, uh, I mean, just a true gentleman, just uh, old world values, and uh, he and he and I came up with these blends, and um, basically we tested it. So my family and I tested the blends that we were kind of uh, toying with. So you basically have the Madrid and the Barcelona. Um, I think you're holding the, the Madrid one. Yeah, that's the Madrid. So it's um, so when we talk about cigars. We, it's, it's kind of like the wine world, right? So we'll talk about the uh, anatomy of the cigar, uh, wrapper, binder, filler, and most most importantly, mo- uh, we, we kind of focus on the wrapper. So that's the outer leaf you see on all these handmade cigars. That's probably the most important part of a cigar. So this is um, a San Andreas Maduro. So that means it comes from the San Andreas Valley in Mexico, and it's a Maduro grade. So it's a darker color, 
typically has like a toasty kind of caramel cocoa-ish uh, uh, profile to it. The other one is the Barcelona and that's an Ecuador Corojo wrapper. So it has more of like a drier tone to it. Um, think of like coffee or leather. Um, and so those are just kind of the different profiles and uh, we're excited about it. So uh, going forward, we're going to be reaching out to other factories and doing like these small runs and just naming it after a Spanish city. So we're excited to see how the market reacts to it. And so far, we've done pretty well with them. Yeah, I mean, that's it's incredible to see when you go from selling other people's products to building something in-house and selling your own product. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited and curious to hear the history of how y'all got to that and everything y'all been doing since, what, you said 2010 is when y'all opened? That's when we opened, yeah, our first okay. location. Mm -hmm. So let's get these lit, man. Walk us through what to do with a cigar the proper way. Right. Or the so, Havana port way. Yeah, no, no. I mean, um, so the... Key takeaway is when smoking a cigar, it's really a personal ritual, right? So there are certain tips to really enhance the, the enjoyment of a cigar, but really it's up to you. So I brought um, two styles of cutters. You have, this is the V cutter. So this one is from a company called Calibri, which makes quality products. Uh, the V cutter's name, because of the, the, the shape of the blade, it kind of has like this V shape to it, right? So when you insert the cigar, and depress on it, it cuts this nice little uh, uh, V or wedge cut. So a lot of people like that one. So if you want to try that out, I mean, it's kind of foolproof too because there's that little hole in there. So it's a good guide as to uh, how to cut the cigar. There you go. I mean, no, nothing to it. Perfect. Most, a lot of people also like what we call the guillotine cutter. Um, and this one in particular is a double blade. So it has um, two blades and then you just kind of eyeball it and just cut a little sliver of it. Right. So when you look at a cigar, uh, this is what we call the head and this is the foot. So you cut the head and light the foot. Uh, and with a double blade or a straight cut, you just kind of look for what we call the cap on the head. So it's kind of like the Arctic Circle. And you just want to cut north of that Arctic Circle. And so it's just a little tiny cut. You know, we try to tell people don't cut too far because the cap is what keeps the wrapper leaf intact. If right. you cut too much of it, then the wrapper starts to unravel. So, um, you know, maybe a lot of beginners might not use the straight cut, but for me, I, that's actually my preferred method. But this V cutter is awesome. So I, I love a V cut. And so the V cut mm -hmm. for those, it, you can see it's like a very defined V cut into the cigar. So I prefer the V cut over the straight cut, but for the exact reason that you said earlier, it's basically dummy proof. It's kind of yeah. hard to mess yeah. it up and cut it too far past mm -hmm. the cap. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, because of the way they're designed, there's really no way to cut it so deep to where the wrapper can start to unravel and give you problems. So gotcha. that's why, I mean, a lot of people like it. And especially with this Calibri model, this is what put them back on the map. Uh, I mean, it's a very solid piece and uh, does a nice clean cut, too. Excellent. So now we just light them up. Yep. So the next step, lighting up. Um, I brought matches. You know, a lot of purists like the match. And so that's a common <laughs> you know, debate or question is, oh, do I light it with a match or a torch? What do I do? So what we'll say is, you know, I, I actually prefer lighting it with a torch. Okay. It's quick. So? It's quick, uh, easy. But you have to remember the torch lighter, and we use butane, right? You don't, you don't want to use... Um, you know, a lot of people don't like the Zippo fluid because it has that heavy metallic taste. So you want to use butane if you're going to use a torch lighter. The key with a torch is because of its intensity of temperature, it's that blue flame, you don't want to hold it too close to the, to the tobacco or the cigar because that intense heat can char the tobacco and 
cause that burnt sensation to it. So that's where like the the people who hate torch lighters will that, that's that's why. I mean, it's, maybe they were right, lighting it too close and um, and it kind of uh, scorches the tobacco. But if you do that, don't worry. I mean, you could just maybe smoke an inch into it and it'll kind of dissipate. But that's why a lot of people like the soft flame, whether it be a match or Bic, um, just any uh, light that emits that orange or yellow flame because it's a lower temperature. So what I do with a match, when you strike it, kind of let the sulfur burn out for a moment, right? Because you don't want that sulfur, that taste, that impurity going into the cigar. So you kind of burn it for just a moment. And then the beauty of a match is you can let that flame touch the cigar directly because it's a lower temperature. It won't uh, scorch the, the tobacco necessarily. So what I do is I strike it, let it burn for a moment, then I just kind of puff. And the key is you want to make sure every square inch of that foot is lit. So some people might rotate the cigar. I usually just kind of move the, the light. So again, it's a personal ritual. You do what feels comfortable for you. So uh, with that, we'll just kind of start it and uh, Let's light it, it up. Man. So some people might roast it. That's another little tradition. But uh, you can, with these, even just start right away. I'm going to be the one that takes two matches to get it lit. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> but clearly Look, yeah, I yeah. use butane more than, more than a match. So, so the matches we have, and a lot of people, you know, give us a lot of positive feedback on these matches. Um, and I have to use two matches too. So don't worry about that. I mean, sometimes you might have to. Um, but real cigar matches or, you know, the better cigar matches are those that are a little bit longer, right, than your typical uh, you know, house uh, match or, or what have you because those are a lot shorter. Um, you know, the length of these allow it to where you can kind of take your time and light. Um, now, this being a Maduro wrapper is typically a little bit, uh, it's a little thicker of a leaf, so it might take a little longer, but that's okay. Perfect. Now, this is, this is good, man. Now, I've got mine lit, and now we can, now we can get down to business, as they say, you mm -hmm. know? This is, so this just is, a, kind of, yeah. is a, a heavier cigar at first take. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of like with wine, you know, if you're a wine drinker um, or, or, or just a culinary enthusiast, we describe cigars in very similar language and, and terms, right? It's, it's really just an olfactory experience. And so, like, why, what is the point of smoking a cigar? You know, it's not like cigarettes. As weird as it sounds, this is an organic product. You know, it's pure tobacco. There's no chemicals. Um, or anything artificial about it. All that went into this is air, earth, and water. And you don't inhale it, so that's another differentiator uh, between our industry and the cigarette world. Uh, and it's really meant to just kind of relax you, right? Um, it could be communal. I mean, a lot of people like to smoke together in parties or celebrate a milestone. But a lot of people like to just maybe smoke by themselves and meditate. And that's kind of the beauty of it, right? So you really need to devote time to smoking a cigar because it's not just a quick fix like a cigarette. So that's why a lot of people like a, maybe a shorter cigar because, you know, we don't have time or that luxury. But, uh, you know, that is the beauty of it. So, you know, you basically, after you light it, you pull the smoke and you let it sit and then you blow it out. Um, but a lot of people, kind of like in the wine world where, where they judge wines, 
in our industry, if you retrohale, and that's basically the act of drawing in the smoke and pushing it through the old, uh, the old factory, the, uh, the nasal cavity, you're blowing it through, you can actually perceive more flavors. And that's like why you, you heat, when, when wine is judged, these, these people will kind of gurgle and agitate the, the air and basically kind of retrohale that through the nose because you'll pick up more flavors. So it's kind of weird. Like you'll read some of these descriptions about cigars. Oh, it might have a hint of cocoa or leather or berries or nuts. Like there's actually validity to that because uh, those are kind of like, I guess in the, the scientific view, the, the aroma, those compounds that kind of remind you of those same notes. And um, so basically you're perceiving and enjoying that flavor that the cigar uh, produces and just blowing it out and then just kind of relaxing. So that's kind of like deconstructing why we, you know, why we enjoy cigars. Right. And it, it is a very relaxing activity, right? You know, mm-hmm. but you're hundred percent right. You've got to have a decent amount of time to devote to mm-hmm. enjoying a cigar. It's not, you know, a five, 10 minute smoke or even a 20 minute smoke, right. depending on the length that you get. But what I want to go back to is kind of how y'all got started. How did you get into this cigar business? I know you said beforehand you've been enjoying cigars since 96. Yeah. And then 14 years later, you all opened a cigar shop. So walk us through how that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, I uh, basically kind of like how a lot of people start out. Uh, me and a friend kind of borrow his dad's cigar and uh, we smoke it. And it was one of these like, you know, crummy machine made cigars. and It just tasted horrible. But uh, as I'm, you know, as I was smoking it, I realized, you know what, I, I hate this, but I could probably enjoy and see myself enjoying, you know, a fine premium cigar. So um, I started early, you know, going into humidors when I was 18 and, you know, learning just, you know, how to be a consumer and an enthusiast of, uh, of cigars. Um, so even through college, I was known as like the cigar guy with, with my friends. And after I graduated, you know, I actually had a, um, a career path or a track for, I guess, Wall Street and, and the world of finance. So you were in finance at, at undergrad? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, went to Notre Dame. And uh, when I came back to New Orleans, uh, you know, I wanted to take the summer off. And my father actually saw an ad for a part-time um, a sales associate at a local cigar shop. And so he said, oh, why don't you just try this in the meanwhile while you're trying to figure out what, you know, where, where you want to work. So I said, yeah, I love cigars. Let me just do this for a few months. Uh, but pretty soon after, I realized I want to actually devote a career to the cigar world. Um, so I did that and worked for a large uh, convenience store distributor out of uh, Harahan, Louisiana, and worked there. And then my father actually joined, and he's always been an entrepreneur, and he's had a lot of different businesses um, I wish he was here tonight, but he just couldn't make it. Um, so he and I worked at that C store distributor, oversaw their premium cigar division, and that's how we learned the business. So then fast forward to 2010, that's when we branched out on our own and opened up our own uh, retail store. Um, our first location was in Covington. So we opened Covington in 2010. Then we opened up Baton Rouge in 2012. Uh, and that's when my brother joined. So it's, it's a family business. Uh, my father, myself, and my brother. And uh, they actually closed Covington and moved it to Metairie. So now we have the two. Um, and we, we, we opened up another location in, in the Riverwalk in New Orleans. But that was a different kind of template. It was just more of an experiment. It just didn't, it didn't work out. Uh, so we 
stayed with, with our brick and mortars in Metairie and Baton Rouge. So when y'all decide to open it into Covington, I mean, <laughs> it generally if somebody's working in a store, it's that, that hard leap or that hard cut to say, you know, I think we can do this better. Mm-hmm. What kind of drove y'all into that? What decision process went into it? I know you're, you said your dad is kind of an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, what were those family discussions like leading up to the decision to actually go out and do this on your own, on y'all's own? Well, I think that coming from an entrepreneurial mindset, my father, uh, namely, you know, he had always wanted to to open up another business. Uh, he actually used to be involved in coffee uh, in El Salvador. That's where they're from. Uh, my parents are from El Salvador. He opened up a sports goods uh, importing firm in the 80s. I mean, he's done a, a lot of different businesses. And, you know, he would either close it or sell it. And uh, I guess the fact that we were getting a lot, gaining a lot of experience in something that, you know, I love. So I actually got the family involved in cigars because there wasn't anyone else in the family that was really an enthusiast beforehand. And they soon uh, learned to, to grow to love cigars. And, you know, we wanted to monetize and we felt we could do it better and run it, you know, with, with, with our vision. Um, so we, we, we parted in, in 2010 and uh, opened up, you know, our own, our own business. I love that. And so... Going into 2010, you're opening your first store. I mean, I'm sure it's kind of nerve-wracking mm-hmm. to know, is this going to be successful, and are we going to be able to continue to pay the rent? And I'm sure from your years working where y'all worked, y'all had a good knowledge base of what type of cigars to carry. So were y'all coming out the gate with your own line, or did that come later? So I forgot to mention, uh, I had left the uh, company you know I was working at, the C-Store distributor, in 2007 to actually try my stab at creating my own line okay my own brand okay so let's, i forgot to mention let's, that yeah, yeah let's, little, let's, little, let's back up yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's back so, up a little bit you know i have a little more insight into the industry in terms of the supply chain um than a lot of other cigar stores in this country so i tried that and actually my father recommended against that he said don't you know i wouldn't recommend doing that right now you know that's a whole different business and we learned more about the retail side of the supply chain. But I was trying to go more into the importing, distribution nationally. And, you know, in retrospect, he was right. You know, but he, he actually helped finance that, and it didn't work out. I mean, we were undercapitalized. But, I, you know, I learned a lot about the business that probably helped us out today. You know, fast forward to when we open up our own stores. Um, and because of that knowledge and, and learning some of those contacts about, like, the suppliers of, say, like, the bands, the cigar rings, uh, packaging, the box makers, and different factories, you know, we were able to use that, that knowledge and, and create, you know, our own brands under the Havana Port uh, umbrella. Um, so, basically, I closed up. Let's see. I started in 2007. And that's, you know, 2008, that's when, like, the economy crashed. <laughs> Perfect time to right, start right. a and, premium yeah, cigar business. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I tried to do it right. I actually opened up a, a little uh, small warehouse in Pensacola, Florida, and I tried to save money. I even slept, you know, in the warehouse for close to a year. Yeah, it was it was brutal, but I tried to do whatever I can, to, you know, or could to, to save money. Um, so, yeah, in retrospect, I mean, it may have been a failure, but from those experiences I learned, you know, what not to do, how to improve on things. Um, so then in 2010, you know, my father actually stayed on with that firm until 2010. And when he had the capital, you know, he was ready to go. He, he asked me to help him on, you know, 
run the the uh, you know, our own brick and mortar retail store. So you know, I was ready to, to do that, and you know, he and I uh, grew it together along with my brother when he joined us in 2012. So when you went to kind of backward integrate from being the seller to being the actual manufacturer, did y'all did you mm-hmm. have connections? Did you already have established that, or like wh- how did you even go or know where to go to start sourcing? the actual tobacco leaves and making it and all that. Yeah. So, I mean, I attribute that to our time having uh, been at, at the previous employer, you know, learning and networking and, and you know, knowing the, the contacts, you know, who to call. And, you know, it also helps. I mean, it's not necessary, but having the Hispanic background and, and knowing Spanish, that goes a long way too because, remember, our industry, you know, it's a lot of old Cubans that were, are involved in this industry still. Uh, and they're based now in Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic. So that helps. I mean, it's not the end all be all. There are a lot of manufacturers who don't have a Spanish or Latin background that certainly thrive. Uh, but that definitely helps. And that helps open up uh, certain accounts too. You know, our industry is one of very scarce resources. It's not like the cigarette world where they can flip a button, crank out, you know, this product. There's a lot of time that goes into making a cigar you know, on average from seed to smoke, it's about three to four years on average. So, yeah, really? It's a, it's a long time, yeah. Um, and I've, I mean, I'm still learning even about that side of the business. I mean, I'm definitely like no expert on that, but just talking to our suppliers and a lot of these um, cigar houses are, are, are small businesses themselves. And, you know, it's interesting hearing their story, their side of the business on how they supply leaf. I mean, right now there's a shortage of a particular leaf called Connecticut broadleaf. That's a, a specific type of a Maduro. Uh, I think what happened, from what I understand, a huge uh, company, I think from the mass market side, um, and when we say that, we're talking about like machine-made cigars, so like the Swisher Sweets, the Black and Miles of the world, we call that mass market. One of these companies bought up all of this leaf, and a lot of our... Um, premium cigar manufacturers, they use that leaf. They can't get that. So there's a lot of back orders with some of these particular blends and brands that use that component. They can't get that. So it's interesting hearing how they have to adapt and react to that, that scenario. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of behind the scenes that you don't really hear in our industry because it is so small. It's less than 1% of, of the U.S. population that even enjoys a cigar. Yeah. So it's a very small niche market. And then a smaller part of that actually enjoys premium cigars as opposed to the Swisher Sweets or the stuff you can get behind the, the So that's a little bit more. No, I'm talking about 1% of, of oh, just, yeah, gotcha. the population, of the general population. Uh, I don't know now, like, with the way the cigarette consumption has been decreasing, but for a while it was about 20%. They had market penetration, but I'm sure it's gone way down since then. So premium cigars is about 1%. I don't know about the mass market cigars. I know it's more than the premiums, but... Uh, you know, the point is that it's still a very small segment of consumers that we target. But even so, I mean, there can be ripple effects when, say, another industry like a mass market buys up all this crop, buys all the contracts, you know, for, for this crop, and, and they're left to scramble and try to react to that. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty much having a, a, a giant come in and absorb all the supply without being able to grow it quickly enough. I mean, mm-hmm. like you're saying, from seed to smoke, it's roughly three years. Yeah. That can take time to accumulate and put together these products. And so 
how did you go about actually, so that the blend we're smoking today, how did you, you say y'all were tasting it beforehand. So how did y'all go about, I mean, how do you taste, did you just smoke them or what, what is that process like sourcing and creating your own line? So that depends, right? As uh, I guess a buyer of a particular blend, you can go to any of these factories. You could be as involved as you want or kind of hands off as you want. You know, some shops will just say, look, just give me whatever stock blend. We'll put our label on it and we'll call it a day. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not, you know, uh, degrading that. But uh, we wanted to go a little bit more into it. Dealing with a small house like Tabacalera La Isla, who's making these uh, first two blends for us, he's limited, too, to what kind of stock he has. So what we, I basically went from the point of view of I'm looking for particular profile. I don't really care what the anatomy is as long as I know it'll be consistent, but I'm looking for certain flavors. And so we discussed with, with the factory owner, he sends us, you know, five or six different test batches and we all smoke them, judge them and take it from there. Now other, uh, what I call like middlemen companies that they don't actually own the production or the, the, the farmland, they might get more intimate some of them might actually buy and source the tobacco themselves and supply it to the factory who makes it. So it just depends on, on how, I guess, uh, involved a, a company wants to get with that. And I, I imagine it's the same like in the wine world. Um, so a lot of similarities with, with, I guess, creating your own blend. So what profiles did you know? Like you said, you, you wanted to pick out certain profiles, but not necessarily some of the nitty-gritty interior. So what was the profiles you were after uh, specifically for the blend we've got right now? So I was looking for, me personally, something more of like an espresso combination, maybe a little cream. And it came down to these two blends. Initially, we were just going to buy one blend. But these top two were, were our favorites. So we were like, you know, let's just bring them both and let the, the consumers judge it. And that's kind of how that evolved into like doing test batches and small runs. But we've had so much success with these that we're probably going to keep these ongoing. Now, the, the thinking with this, too, it's kind of like our exper experimental uh, blends. If we find any particular blend, and it could be from other factories, if, if they have a high response, we'll actually devote that to like a full, fully dressed trademark, which we're actually working on four uh, trademarks this year, uh, hiring a, a, a graphic designer that I've actually been trying to seek for five years who's very sought after, and he finally uh, committed to, to helping us out. Um, so that's exciting. And, you know, we'll, we'll ho hopefully release those uh, this year. Okay. So now you're beyond the point of like, because the one we're smoking right now does not have like a band or a ring. Yeah. Line. They will, though. This is the first <clears throat> batch. It was kind of like a test run right. for like this test run concept. And the next batch uh, actually should be getting produced soon. We're going to get two more blends from them. Another, another wrapper that's uh, what we call a, a shade grown wrapper. So those are those blonde looking. Uh, uh, cigars that are typically associated with like a mild profile and then we'll be doing another San Andreas Maduro in a 6x60 format which means a 6 inch by a 60 ring gauge that's just a fatter cigar okay so let's talk about that the, the sizing of the cigars I mean mm -hmm. just but just behind us it looks like we have roughly three different sizes in the boxes next to you so walk us through what, what's a sizing component if somebody's going to come you know if, if a new person is going to come into yeah. the cigar shop what can they kind of expect? What do they look for? How do you walk them through their their buying process in Havana Port? 
So what I'll usually ask a consumer is how much time do you want to devote to a cigar? Right. And typically the Robusto, which is a five inch format like this one, will usually take about 30, 35 minutes. And that's on average what most people want to devote to a full cigar. Uh, what we call a Toro typically is a six inch cigar. And that's close to what we're smoking. Um, that'll be about 45, 50 minutes. And then the format you hear called Churchill, that, that's a, usually a seven inch cigar. That'll take about an hour or more. Okay. Uh, so I usually will recommend the Robusto to people because that's typically about as much time as they want to devote to a cigar. But any consumer can certainly go with, with different formats. So when we quote a, a Vitola's dimensions, and a Vitola is just an industry term for a particular cigar's dimensions and what what a factory might call that particular uh, cigar. So like the Robusto, for example, we would quote as a 5 by 50 or it could be a 5 by 52. Unfortunately, there's no regulatory body in our, in our industry. So that leads to a lot of confusion, uh, you know, in the marketplace. So one company's Robusto might be another company's Toro. So what we try to do is just objectively tell you the, the dimensions. So the first number is usually the length in inches, so five inches, by the the um, diameter, which we call ring gauge. So the higher that number, the fatter the cigar. And just for nerd speak, uh, it's measured in 64ths of an inch. Okay. So if a cigar is 64 ring gauge, it's 64 64ths of an inch or an inch in diameter. If it's 32, it's 32 64 or half an inch in diameter. So the point is the bigger the number, the fatter the cigar. And the 6x60 format is actually the second most popular size that we've seen. You know, I guess... People like a longer and a fatter cigar. Yeah, I mean, they just... I don't know what where where that that evolved. I mean, forever, our industry liked thinner ring gauges. But over time, I really started noticing that trend like in the early 2000s. More people got into that 60 ring gauge format. And, uh, yeah, at least according to the industry, it's, it's the second best-selling size right now. That's incredible. So yeah. we're at your your new location here on, on Perkins and College. Y'all had the original Baton Rouge location, so your second opening, was right down the street in, a, in like a strip mall almost. It was a yeah. very small, isolated facility, and you had a big, big walk-in humidor. But y'all have made some changes here that I want to get to, but first I want to kind of mm-hmm. go back to that other location. Yeah. that y'all came from. So yeah. when did y'all open that in 20, 2012? 2012, yeah, okay. in March of 2012. So how did y'all pick that spot? So we knew we were at 4433 Perkins, which is essentially on the corner of Perkins and College, right next to the AutoZone. There's a strip mall there. We knew that, you know, it has challenges of the ingress, egress of people getting in and out, but we knew it was in such a centrally located part of the city. That's where we wanted it to be. And the rent at the time was was really good. Uh, remember, we were coming out of the 2008 crash, so th- there was still kind of like uncertainty in the in the landscape. But we knew going forward it was it was going to get better, so we jumped on it. We negotiated a good lease in, in our view, and the layout was, you know, a typical average cigar shop. I mean, it was about 1,200 square feet. It had a smaller lounge in the back that was public. And we had a walk-in humidor. So it's very traditional kind of retail setting that you would find typically in this country for as far as cigar shops go. Fast forward to the pandemic and the lockdowns. 
we uh you know we shut down and there was kind of from what i remember we were still at first we weren't allowed to sell cigars for those first few days but then the governor came out and exempted i think like grocery stores convenience stores and tobacco operations so we were able to open up but we took the conservative approach and not let anyone in we were typically selling through the door um so as not to i guess you know spread uh any of the virus but it was during that time, you know, we started rethinking, you know, redoing the way we sold cigars. So I'm actually, I love researching the, the history of our industry. And if you looked at cigar shops in this country from like the 50s and beforehand, they used to be set up with the way our current operation is set up. We had glass counters. So think of like a jewelry store set up. You know, so we would have the cigars encased in, 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 in these cases. It's all humidified, but people couldn't touch it. And, you know, it served its, you know, a few purposes, you know, retooling that, that format and the way we, we sold cigars. Number one, it's a lot more hygienic, right? And you'd be surprised over the years, we would see people that just didn't, they weren't educated, didn't have the cigar knowledge or etiquette. And, you know, they might take, the cigar, like really be rough with it and put it back. I've even seen examples over the years of people literally taking a cigar from the shelf, putting it in their mouth, like testing it, and want to put it back if they didn't like it. And you're like, hold on. Yeah, yeah. We we said no, 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 no. You gotta because we're a little bit more active. Right. Um, you know, some other shops in this country I've noticed, like especially during my days of selling to other shops around the country, they might take a hands-off approach and let the buyer kind of do his thing. I mean, you might have bought, I mean, people might have bought cigars that were touched or mishandled by previous consumers and, and didn't know it. Right. Right. So the way we set it up now prevents that. So we feel that our consumers can be rest assured that they'll buy a cigar that wasn't handled, mismanaged by so many previous hands. Right. So it's a lot more hygienic. Number one or number two, uh, you know, it is hygienic. And we've also found that over the years, people might accidentally drop a cigar and bust it up. You know, that stops that, right? So putting it in that display behind glass. And we also found it helped upsell cigars for us. So it forces a sales associate to hand sell each cigar and have an interaction with every consumer. Talk about a a particular brand that the consumer is looking at you know, engage a consumer more, ask more questions. And we found that it led to higher sales, higher turnover. But you, you can also have a component of education in there. Yeah. You can walk them through why it's set up the way it's set up, you know, maybe not to touch the cigar, squeeze the cigar before mm-hmm. purchasing it. And it gives you that self-care instruction that you're not getting whenever you're typically walking into a big open humidor with just cigars on boxes and you're just grabbing whatever ones you want. That's right. And I know... A lot of, I enjoy, like, typically, you know, beforehand, I was, like, smelling the cigar to get a good, you know, get get a good sniff of what the odor of it is. Yeah. And some people will do that probably before buying a cigar. They want to smell it. And it's like, you. Especially post-COVID. Right. Why don't I describe to you the profiles you're going to expect from the cigar before you grab it? And then by the time the consumer is ending up touching it, they're likely going to walk out the door with that cigar as opposed to just grabbing it, squeezing it. "Mm, This one feels a little little hard. I'm going to put it back. And it's like, well, hold on. Which... Funny enough, and I know it may have been tradition or seeing it in the movies, like people smelling that cigar before purchasing it. 
that's really no indicator of how the cigar will smoke. Right. I've smelled plenty of cigars that we call a farmhouse aroma, which basically smells like manure. But putting that fire, it caused that chemical reaction. It might taste totally different and really sublime. Conversely, I've smelled some cigars that have a nice smell to it, but when you light it, it's like a dud. It doesn't taste good at all. So we try to educate people like there's really no point in smelling a cigar, you know, before purchasing it. Now, after you buy it, yeah, you can smell it, and that's part of the ritual, but like that's not always an indicator of how a cigar will, will, will smoke. In fact, we found that some of the worst smelling cigars actually might smoke the best. Uh, and then as far as the touching thing, I get it. There are a lot of retailers in this country, especially decades ago. Now the standards are so high among the, you know, within the industry, most cigars are humidified. Um, and I think that's where that came from is like testing to make sure it's humidified. But we try to explain our consumers and we're very transparent. We have the hygrometers throughout the store that they can see visually like what the humidity set at. So walk us through the reason for having a certain humidity within either a humidor at your home mm-hmm. or a humidor in a shop and the importance of that. So cigars, the, the, the way they've been cured, the tobacco has to be in certain conditions, right? As long as they're the, the acceptable range, uh, acceptable range for humidity is anywhere between 65 and 75 percent relative humidity. As long as it's, as the cigar is in that range, they'll be fine. If it's too dry, the, the, the moisture, the internal moisture content dries up. And then you'll have problems when you light the cigar can crack on you and, and just, you know, you'll have a bad experience. If it's too wet, mold can occur. The cigar gets too spongy because tobacco is like a sponge. It's, it's what we call hygroscopic. So it responds to the environment, which is why a lot of humidors, say, in Arizona or California, they really have to be on top of their game of making sure their environment, the humidor, is well humidified. Fortunately, being in South Louisiana, yeah, we don't really have to hum- have worry a about lot of hum- fact, We got to keep them dry. Yeah, we actually got to dry out the cigars. So uh, we tend to run our AC a little bit cooler to kind of bring down the humidity. As far as temperature, as long as as the cigar doesn't get above 70, 72 degrees Fahrenheit, it's fine. And you can actually lower the temperature too. If it gets above uh, 70, uh, I'm sorry, it's 75, I think it's 75 degrees. Yeah, 75 degrees or higher, what ends up happening is the, the tobacco can start to ferment and cook. So you want to keep it cool. If it gets too hot, yeah, so like when people leave a cigar, say in a hot car, that can cook the tobacco, and then the, the net result when you smoke it, it, it tastes more uh, like ammonia because it starts to ferment again. Okay. So you want to keep the cigars in the right conditions, right? Under, uh, around, you know, a lot of people talk about the golden rule, the 70 70, because it's an easier way to remember 70 degrees. Fahrenheit, 70% relative humidity. And as long as you keep those conditions, a cigar can last indefinitely. We used to sell cigars that we classified as vintage in our old store. And when we, you know, according to us, when we label cigars vintage, it's a cigar having 20 years of age or, or more on it. And there's actually a very su- a small submarket of people who seek vintage cigars. So I think the oldest cigar we sold was from 1943. Holy smokes. Yeah. Um, and just a little tidbit, the oldest cigar I ever smoked was from uh, a factory out of Ohio from 1903. 1903. Mm-hmm. And this was in what year? I smoked that, that was, I think, 2006. So 103-year-old cigar. Yeah. That's, at the time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, the point is, it's kind of like with wines. Now, not every cigar will, will see improvement 
you know, with so much time, but it can smoke. Yeah. And that particular cigar had a very faint, almost like tea-like note, which is very indicative of a lot of those vintage cigars. They changed totally different than what you would find currently. But our industry, at least our country, doesn't really care about vintage cigars. They, they want to get a cigar and smoke it right away. They don't, we don't have the patience to age it. But there are some fanatics um, in the cigar world, especially in Hong Kong. They're huge about that. They love to buy cigars, age it for 20 years, and smoke a cigar, you know, with, with that much time on it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's kind of like what some people would do with a bottle of bourbon or something mm-hmm. or a bottle of wine. They'll purchase it the year, like I know a friend of mine was mentioning that when they had their first kid, was like, I'm going to buy a bottle of wine or something yeah, yeah. and then age it until their wedding day, and that's what we're going to drink on, like, as a celebratory yeah. event on their wedding day. I'm sure people do it in the same cigar industry as well as let's buy them now and then let's age them, but... What comes with that is so much upkeep and maintenance, which y'all have explored now with this other location of like a membership within where we're at right now. So are y'all going to offer something like a humidifier locker or something like that for members? Or what can somebody expect who wants to purchase an age but not necessarily maintain at their house? Is that something y'all have? So that is one of the benefits uh, for our members lounge. With every membership comes a, a humidified locker. The, the member doesn't have to worry about maintenance. That's, that's what they're paying for is, is the fact that we're going to wash the conditions and make sure their stock is, is fine. In fact, a lot of our members have, you know, they bring their cigars that they want to age just for that reason. So they don't have to worry about that. And um, another interesting uh, feature about vintage cigars or why people get into that is to purchase what we call pre-embargo Cubans. So to go back to the whole Cuban thing, yeah, what, what, yeah. What, what do you know the history behind yeah. that? What, what happened there? Absolutely. I'm curious and intrigued. So you got to go back all the way to the Spanish when Cuba was the Spanish territory. It was discovered that the, the terrain and, and the environment was really suitable for, for producing um, cigar tobacco, growing cigar tobacco, among other uh, crops like sugar. And so for decades, just the industry grew in Cuba. And it wasn't until uh, the revolution when Castro came in and displaced a lot of these companies. Uh, and so it's a very common thing in our industry. That we're still dealing with the old Cuban families, and they were the reason why Cuba still has a fame today. And I know I might get in trouble, but, you know, in my opinion, I just I don't think like, Cuba has the potential to be great. But you have to remember the knowledge base. There was a real brain drain on that island. And so all these old Cuban families went to – uh, Dominican Republic. A lot of them went to the Canary Islands at first because it was part of like the Spanish uh, 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 territories and the culture. And the Canary Islands were really suitable for growing a lot of tobacco. Uh, and then you saw other families go to Honduras, Nicaragua. And so we say Cubans are still making the best cigars in the world. They're just not in Cuba. But the fame of Cuba still stuck. But again, it's, it's with a lot of people that just really, literally don't, they don't know what they're doing. It's a lot of these poor that were there that had this, the resources, but they didn't really have the knowledge to make. And so it's weird to say, but for me, the best cigar I've ever smoked and personally smoked was a Cuban. But smoking it again, it, it didn't, it's very inconsistent. So they had the potential, but they just don't have like the knowledge base that a lot of the old families had. So you saw that in the rum world, too. Remember, Bacardi was a Cuban rum. But that family was displaced, and they, they were forced to Puerto Rico. 
So you saw that in other industries as well. So when the revolution occurred, there was a real displacement of knowledge and, and, and other businesses. Uh, but there's still like a lot of non-smokers. They've heard about this Cuban thing, so they they, they, they like to perpetuating me, like, that. Yeah, like Cuban, like yeah. the Cuban cigars are, I guess, sought or thought of within the non-highly educated folks in the cigar world, or at least in my, at least on my end. Like when I think of a Cuban cigar, I think of this elevated, high-level yeah. cigar. But that could just be lack of an education on my no, part. Well, and a lot of it has to do with the embargo still in place. You'd be surprised. A lot of our consumers don't. They still don't realize the U.S. has an embargo against Cuba, which prohibits trade with Cuba. Uh, and I think that forbidden apple mystique enhances that, you know, that that kind of, that thinking of, oh, because I can't get it, it must be good, right? Which <laughs> rationally doesn't make sense. Like, just because you can't get it doesn't make it good. Uh, but that's how, you know, just human nature we think. But if you talk to real serious cigar smokers, the non-Cubans, or what some people call the New World cigars, you know, the cigars available in the American market, they're some of the best in the world. And, you know, I've, I've traveled the world and talked to other cigar shop owners internationally, and they're even seeing more market share being taken by the non-Cubans. Because, you know, we, Cubans were found every in every other country but the U.S., so they were the dominant players, but you're seeing that being eroded. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, if, if the embargo is ever lifted, hopefully that could be an opportunity for some of the old families to go back maybe bring back some of the, that knowledge base, but we, we don't know how that'll, that'll turn out. I mean, I mean, everyone thought in the beginning of the, uh, when that embargo was placed that it would just, it would, would have been a temporary thing, but you know, here we are, what, 60, 70 years later and it's still in place. Yeah. I mean, it's affecting several industries and specifically, you know, the cigar industry mm-hmm. with not being able to get those products in here. So y'all have got a, a kind of, bringing the shop back to fit to the 1950s at our early style cigar shops. But then you'll also have this area that we're in. I don't know if it's an official unveiling on this episode or not, but this members only area, walk us through kind of what members can expect to be back here in your shop on Perkins. Yeah. So we wanted to, you know, we were thinking of offering a, a haven for like the business class, right? Professionals who maybe don't want to be in a, like a, a rowdy bar setting. Uh, they want their own quiet space. Maybe they can get, conduct, conduct business. So that was who we were thinking of uh, when we were laying out the space. So some of the amenities include, besides the, the seating, we installed a, a ventilation system where it won't get smoky in here. You know, we have great Wi-Fi, uh, different rooms. So if you wanted to be in a communal room and socialize with people, you could. Or if you wanted to be by yourself and conduct business or just meditate, you could. We have a, an outdoor space that we develop. Um, other amenities include access to maybe rare cigars, uh, discounts. We'll do cookouts just for members. And you also get, you know, members get that, that, that locker space that we'll maintain for them. So we are seeing a trend in our industry of more shops offering more uh, like a, of a private or mem- uh, private membership. A lot of shops are still public, you know, as long as you bought cigars, you could use their lounge. But we feel that because the space, you know, we never really focus on lounges. In fact, our Metairie store, if you go there, we don't even have a smoking space. But we were able to thrive there because we're focusing more on offering inventory. And, you know, I see a lot of new entries, new shops that pop up around the country. They see, In my opinion, they seem to get it inefficient in that they want to place more focus on a lounge space, but that's not where your revenue is being generated. It's in the inventory. So 
we felt over time that it's more efficient to focus the space on inventory, offer more selection, drive down prices instead of a smoking space. And Mattery's proven it. They're grossing, you know, quite a bit more than even this location is in a smaller footprint uh, with and without a smoking space. Now, it's not to say that we won't get into that, but this will be kind of a test run to see if, you know, our markets can kind of sustain that. You know, I've heard of other shops, uh, say, like in Beverly Hills or Manhattan, that they might offer memberships that might cost five to 10000 a year. And, you know, we're, we're being a little bit more conservative with, with our market. I mean, we're for single memberships starting at 1500 a year or for the double where you can get two members at 2500 So we'll see if, if, if there's demand for it. If not, we're not really incentivized to fill it up either because, you know, we've been operating for close to a year without the smoking parlor. Right, and then y'all have also got a little a little special room back there that I kind of was attracted to yeah. and drawn to. You've got like your own little podcast studio back yeah. there, so I mean, you're you're a cigar shop that sells cigars, and I've got a private lounge space for members. What's what's with the what's with the podcasting space, man? I mean, I'm all about yeah. it. I love yeah, yeah. it. I love seeing more podcasts pop up, and particularly podcasting studios and such with what I think every business should have. Right. But what was kind of the thought process for y'all to create such a space? Yes, I mean, you obviously understand, like, the power of mass distribution of of content creation, especially in our industry that is still so old world, and usually it's to the detriment of of our progress. Um, You know, the way we viewed our operation is to really keep up with a lot of the current technologies and trends especially in an industry that's so niche like there isn't there isn't this culture overall in america i'd say of of just being um cigar consumers even though we are the number one cigar market in the world again it's still only one percent of the population that enjoys cigars so to the 99 percent of other americans they don't they don't know anything about the cigar world. they don't they don't get it yeah yeah so and you don't see too many content creators so i felt like we need to get into the content creation via podcast uh, productions, uh, video productions. You know, we have several ideas we're, we're, we're tooling with. Um, reviews, of course, interviews with industry people, because we have access to some of these in- industry folks that a lot of consumers just don't have. So we want to spread that. And I always felt, you know, if we can educate uh, consumers and even non-smokers, they can get a glimpse into the cigar culture because, you know, I'm very passionate about it. You know, I don't view it as just the... Uh, a tobacco product to me it's it is a culture and a way of life and, and something very divine i mean i have a friend who's a native american and i kind of adopt their worldview on fine tobacco in that it's a very divine product unfortunately the cigarette world you know starting in the early 1900s really changed that and really corrupted my view of what tobacco is supposed to be i mean remember tobacco is the cash crop that built this country so if you walk around washington dc you'll still see little tributes to the tobacco leaf, you know, in sculptures or in buildings, because that's what built this country. Uh, And it's unfortunate that save cigarettes or even the vape world, which I don't care, but look, I'm also an American. To to each their own, yeah. Yeah, I don't don't really care about that, but I just, it kind of disheartens me when there are people that want to malign cigars and put it in the same category as, say, a cigarette or some other product, um, that I feel that the benefits of this product outweigh the cost, but you know, leave it to the individual and let them decide. I mean, I'm, I know that there are risks associated with enjoying a cigar, but 
I feel that the benefits outweigh the cost. And primarily, it, it does kind of help relax you and lower the heart rate. So, I mean, look, anecdotally, I don't have any evidence. So I can't really say that it's good for <laughs> it's, you. But It's not Dr. Lewis's no, opinion. No, exactly. You're right, right. <laughs> but I've seen people in our industry that live in their 80s, 90s, and even 100s, and they're smoking extreme amounts a day. I've, I've known some people in our industry that smoke 10 to 12 a day, and they still live. Like, there's one guy from Perdomo. He's awesome, Aristides. Uh, he's an incredible man. He's, I think, in his 80s. He smokes about 12 a day. And I love talking to him when I go down to visit their factory because he was in Cuba before the revolution, during, and after. So he was part of the cigar world. And uh, it's really interesting to hear his take on the cigar history. You know, I even asked him, you know, Aristides, in your opinion, do you think the Cuban tobacco grown before the revolution is better, equal to, or, or, or worse than like the cigar production coming out of Nicaragua? Because that's really the number one country now is Nicaragua. And he says, oh, by far, Nicaragua is the king in terms of the soil, the terroir, the environment, the culture. So that's where it's at. So it's pretty exciting. But the point I bring up is, you know, this is a man who smokes 12 a day. He's like 84, 85 now, and he's still active. Like, he's still working for the cigar factory, and it's, it's cool to see. So I'm not saying that in everyone's case, smoking cigars will lead to a longer life, but I've seen the benefits of people being relaxed, you know, professionals, that enjoy cigars. I mean, you know, we've had pot airline pilots, doctors, other professionals who maybe they can't enjoy alcohol or other products because of their job or they want to be sober. But the cigar, I mean, it allows them to kind of relax, almost take that drug without the druggy bad effects, right? And it just kind of helps open up your mind in, in, a, in a very sober way, almost enlightening way. Yeah. And so y'all got, I'm really excited to see what y'all have to come with the podcasting studio and the mm -hmm. video space because to me what's so fascinating and I think y'all may have done one of these is the actual live rollings right the live rollings with the creators that come in and what this can do is if somebody can't make it to an event right they can't make it to a Havana port event where you've got a roller coming in when y'all film that and y'all talk about it on a podcast and y'all enjoy one of those cigars yeah. it allows them to consume it later on and also helps further drive education, sales, et cetera, from a business standpoint, where without one, you'd be, what, sending out tweets or sending out posts and still shots where it's, okay, they can yeah. read about it, but when you're able to sit there and go into a longer-form conversation and really open up and enjoy one while you're described, while you're talking about it, instead of holding it, talking about it, and then putting it down grabbing the next one, you're actually able to, you're actually able to enjoy it and share your experience with it is going to be so powerful in the long run, I think, for y'all. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, again, I think the motivation for us to engage in this new initiative is to, you know, educate not just cigar smokers, but non-cigar smokers as, as to our, our lifestyle and culture. Also, it's, it's kind of a way for us to deal with a lot of advertisers and platforms that, are, that have an anti-tobacco policy, right? So... You know, we were on Twitter, like, in 2010, uh, and the other Facebook, you know, all of these other platforms, and I've always wanted to pay them to advertise our shop, but because they have an anti-tobacco policy, they won't accept our money, right? So, and that's fine. Uh, you know, I believe in any business having their own um, rules and, and their policies. So I feel that if we're able to produce our own content and distribute it that way, we can pull people in instead of just trying to pay for advertising. Because, uh, like I said, a lot of 
platforms and, or other media sources, they, they don't they don't want to advertise tobacco. And you can control the message, right? So mm-hmm. whether you get a YouTube channel or you get like an Instagram Reels that we were talking about or Twitter, mm-hmm. you can actually, I mean, you can live stream to Twitter now. You can live stream to YouTube and you can have almost what, like the Bur- I'm a member of the Bur- Baton Rouge Bourbon Society. And they, during COVID, had virtual bottle tastings. So they would send out samples and they would all Zoom together yeah. and have these virtual tastings. And it's now opening that ability within your shop here to do that with the cigar industry. You're able to have people wherever they are in the country or the world and have these virtual smokings or enjoyment of cigars together via your platform. And you can put it on YouTube and now you can control the narrative. You can control the content you're pushing out and how people are viewing it and ultimately build up a platform that you don't need to pay these companies to be on their advertising space. Right, right. So we have ideas. Um, One, just to give you insight, you know, I feel it just can't be cigar focused because... If I'm trying to attract non-cigar smokers, they're not, they're not going to care about cigar reviews, right? So I found that working in a cigar shop, you know, since 2003, I've come across a lot of interesting people. And maybe one idea or one format is to interview some of our interesting clients and hear their story, their life story, right? So kind of like what you're doing, interviewing entrepreneurs and business people, you know, their background, their biography of sorts, you know, explain that or showcase that you know our clients to to the world also we'll ask them generic cigar questions oh what's your favorite brand what size do you like but then really get into like the non-cigar uh interest piece you know that that might be engaging to non-cigar smokers so absolutely hopefully it'll work out if not you know we're willing to to, to risk take that risk you got the space might as well use it if it doesn't work i got another cigar smoking room so yeah (laughs) Well, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, as we start to wind down, we have a set list of questions that we like to ask everybody. And so it's four questions, very hard-hitting questions, very thought-provoking questions. So we're going to start with the hardest. Oh, no. Okay. What is something you did as a kid you wish you could still do today? Hmm. I can't say smoke. <laughs> Uh, you do you still remember doing seeing that? the ashtrays at Schwegman's? You know, uh, hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. We'll keep it food related. I, I guess uh, having a real true Big Mac. Now they're kind of small Macs, you know. I remember when Big Macs were big. The the uh, the 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 econ- economies of scale have yeah. scaled down the product. Yeah, exactly. So you've been in the cigar industry, whether it be enjoying, selling, producing for over 20 plus years. What are three lessons you've kind of learned along the way in your industry? Number one, people buy from people. So that's something I learned uh, in my first job in the tobacco world. It's building relationships and especially like it's very pertinent. I mean, I know it's pertinent in every industry, but more so in our industry because it's still very old world. A lot of deals are still done on a handshake and people buy from people. You're willing to, to engage in business and create these relationships with people you like. You know, uh, yeah, we've come across people that we don't agree with. It's usually a little bit harder to do business with them. Sometimes we have to, 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 to do so because maybe they have a, a brand that they like or what have you. But in the end, um, I took that that notion to at least create the relationships with our clients, and a lot of them have become family. So that's number one. 
you know, people buy, people buy from people. Yeah, I mean that's it's always true in in any industry in any product category. It's ultimately the connection they make with the person selling the product that's going to lead to that sale. Mm-hmm. So, what is something you love about Baton Rouge? Well, I guess the people. Yeah, that that'd be one. Uh, you know, I grew up in Mattery, and I was working for that distributor when Katrina happened, and we actually went and, and stayed here in Baton Rouge during Katrina. Uh, my brother was going to LSU at the time, so we kind of bunked up with him. And it was interesting to see, like, the evolution of, I guess, the, the cultural scene here, and whether it be the food scene, to see it evolve. I want to say it's, maybe it's picked up some DNA from New Orleans, but you know, at first, I mean, we, we, we opened up here because it was a very good viable market. You know, it's a, a big population. People are very supportive of businesses. So that's been pretty cool, and, and I've grown to love it. So now I've moved here. You know, I have a house here, and, and really proud to become part of this community. So I guess it is a people as, as generic as that might sound. Yeah, but, I mean, it's true, though. Yeah. You know, you've got a community you've moved from, and now you've been kind of accepted and ingrained in this new community, yeah. and they're so welcoming and and open to what y'all have. I mean, going through a, a, a shift in location and still seeing the clientele. I mean, yeah, you only moved probably half a mile, right. if if that, away from your original shop, but still seeing people drawn to the name, drawn to the location, and eager to see what y'all are going to build this place yeah. into. It's just fascinating. And, I mean, it's to me it has, like, this small-town feel, but it is larger, so it, it's kind of interesting in that uh, respect. Uh, and, I, and I'm sure, like, over the years I've, kind of discover or learn that I guess there's been this New Orleans versus Baton Rouge uh, sentiment. But I, to me, like, I, I love that Baton Rouge does have its identity, but it's evolving. I mean, there's a lot of activity going on. It's very, I mean, I'm very optimistic. I mean, of course we have our problems, but city doesn't. But I still am very optimistic that the people will, will improve it and make it make it awesome to live in, you know? Absolutely, man. And so for the, the final question, what can I do to help you? Uh, no, just keep doing what you're doing. I, you know, I love what you're doing, interviewing entrepreneurs and just showcasing the talents of this area of Louisiana. Nothing, just keep doing what you're doing. I love what you're doing. I'll have to come back and we'll do an episode in your in your podcast studio once right. everything's completed. Or when we have our podcast, we'll yeah, invite you Yeah, that's what I'm talking Return about, man. Yep. Well, thank you, Lewis, for coming on. I appreciate your time and appreciate you uh, welcoming us into this private lounge space back here. I'm excited to see what how people are going to take it and what you're going to build this place into. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you everybody else for listening or watching the show, whatever platform you're consuming us on. I'm very appreciative of you taking the time to enjoy this episode as much as we love, enjoy recording them. And if you're into cigars or maybe you're wanting to get into that cigar space, come check out Havana Port over here on Perkins right next to college. And they're going to hook you up. They're going to show you. They're going to educate you every step of the way. And let me know that the Patty G Show sent you. And I also want to say a big, wonderful thank you to the amazing folks that bring you this show each and every week. Hear a little bit more about our partners right now. So you're home for a $399 flat fee with Falaya. No, seriously. Falaya will list your home on the MLS and help you get all the way to the closing table for as little as a $399 flat fee. Our online platform is insanely easy to use and will save you thousands. If you're thinking about selling your home in 2022 and want to keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket, you need to check out Falaya. Falaya, real estate.
Reimagined. Thank you all so very much for listening to this episode of the Patty G Show brought to you by Government Taco. They're located on the corner of Government Street and Jefferson Highway. Jay is always slinging up a new taco of the month. So if you're a frequenter to Government Taco, let us know in the comments what you thought about this month's taco of the month. If you're not a frequenter, maybe trying out this month's taco might just convert you. Big thanks over to them at Government Taco for making the Patty G Show possible. Imagine taxiing on a plane looking toward the end of the runway. It seems so far away, it's even hard to see it. And that's what the concept of retirement probably felt like when you were in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, way far in the distance, not visible or even a concern. But as you turn 50, something happens. Retirement suddenly seems like something real, something not too far away. In your 50s, you are rolling down the runway. Retirement is getting closer and closer, faster and faster, weeks and months zipping by. But are you even ready for a successful takeoff to retirement? Fear not, there's still runway left, but the time is now. Time to make progress and time to get a plan. The Runway Decade will help you get organized, get energized, and give you the direction you need to take off to your desired retirement. The Runway Decade, building a pre-retirement flight plan in your 50s. Thank you to Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge for making this show possible. Nick Pentis is a past guest. We love having him on. Listening to him talk about the culture they have over at Mercedes-Benz of Baton Rouge is really an incredible thing to hear. How they treat not only their employees, but every customer that walks through the door You are more than just a number to them. They're going to give you that white glove concierge service every step of the way. They're going to make you feel like family and take what can be a stressful time in people's life. Shopping for a car, they're going to make it so enjoyable and so pleasurable. You're going to want to go back there time and time again for every new vehicle. Thank you so very much for Mercedes-Benz of making this show possible. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Lake Men's Health Center with our Lady of the Lake Physicians Group. Guys, I know it's tough to get out and go to the doctor. I know it's challenging to find time in our busy days, but I promise you, signing up to be a part of this group with Dr. Curtis Chastain and Dr. Tyler Boudreaux, you won't regret it for several reasons, but most of those being the fact of the time it saves, where you're able to get in on the same day, get that appointment done, and spend that time you need to talk with them about what your health goals and concerns are, as well as ensuring that the financial investments you have, you will be able to live out and see those come to fruition. So if you're an investing guy, you know all about and planning for the future and investing in the future. There's no other more important thing to invest in than your health. Make sure you go check them out. Our Lady of the Lake Physicians Group Men's Health Center and tell them Patty G sent you. McClavey's Limited, a proud sponsor of the Patty G Show, has been serving the Baton Rouge area proudly for 40-plus years. Gentlemen and ladies, if you're shopping for your man, there is no other place in the Baton Rouge area to get your clothing, whether it's game day needs, everyday needs, business attire, formal attire, whatever you want. Go over there, see Frank and Ashley. It's a father-daughter duo. They do incredible things in their store. They will outfit you from as simply a shirt that you need for one evening, or all the way to a full wardrobe overhaul. They're going to take care of you every step of the way, and be sure and let them know that Patty G Show sends you. Oh.